Okay, the passage that was read for us in Philippians, that ancient hymn, it's so beautiful. We're not going to talk about it today. We're actually going to use that as a backdrop. Um, and hopefully that is, is echoing in your mind as we go through the message today, because we're actually looking at the Lord's Prayer during the month of January. And we're going to read that again, or I'm going to read it uh, from Matthew's Gospel in just a moment. I grew up, as some of you know, in the Okanagan Valley in a little town called Peachland. And when I was 10, 11, 12, we lived on the side of the mountain. If you've ever been to Peachland, at that time, there's just one traffic light and lots of accidents for some reason, but one light, it was a one light town. And we lived up the side of the mountain on the way to the mine where my dad worked. And the beauty of living on the side of the mountain when you're 10, 11, 12 years old is you've got a whole playground in front of you. And so I used to wander, and when I think about this, I think, were my parents irresponsible? Maybe. Uh, but I used to wander on my own around the mountain and up the hillside for hours at a time. I mean, there's black bear and there's cougars and there's even wolves, there's hunters. It's, it's, when I think about it now, I actually get a little anxious. But back then, I had no anxiety about it. it it's weird. I don't ever remember being fearful. I mean, I had a big red dog, uh, Rusty, and Rusty was a combination between an Irish setter and a very large Doberman Pinscher, and Rusty never left my side. So maybe that was part of the lack of fear. Rusty was always there, but I never was afraid of getting lost because I knew that if I was in unfamiliar surroundings, all I needed to do was climb the hill a little higher or climb a tree, and if I could see the lake, I wasn't lost. Okanagan Lake. It's a pretty big body of water. And if I saw the lake, I knew that if I headed in the direction of the lake, I'd eventually hit home. That's what it means to be oriented in a certain direction, right? So that even in unfamiliar surroundings, you can pick a familiar point and focus on it and move toward it. Well, how do we find our way in disorienting times? Uh, we live in disorienting times sometimes when we face an unexpected illness or a sickness. A lot of people over these last few weeks have experienced COVID. And I remember way back in April when Samuel and I had COVID, we were wondering, where is this going to take us? What's going to happen to our bodies? And what's going to happen to my mind as I sit in my daughter's room for two weeks solid, wondering when I'm going to be released? And so you begin to wonder these things. And there's anxiety associated with sickness, a disorientation. Or loss, loss of a loved one, or loss of a job, or loss of status, or sometimes we just face stress because of relationships, whatever we're facing, this entire pandemic, uh, we feel a little disoriented. How do we find our way? Well, we climb a little higher. We get up a little higher. And how do we do that? We pray. We pray. And the Bible invites us to pray when things are going really good. Sometimes we forget that. When things are going great, we're meant to pray prayers of thanksgiving because that orients us to God as well. But when things are tough, we're also meant to pray, not simply for a solution, not simply to be removed. Jesus didn't pray for us to be removed from the troubles of the world, but he prayed that we might be kept by God's strength in them. And so we orient ourselves by prayer. In Luke's gospel, the disciples made the best request ever to Jesus. What did they say? Do you remember? Teach us to pray. Finally, a good request. 
And of all the answers Jesus gave, this is, I think, one of the most beautiful, simple, and practical for us today. And in Matthew's gospel, it reads like this. Jesus responded to them, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. What a prayer. A prayer of orientation. Jesus says right before that passage in in Matthew that I just read, Jesus says to the disciples, "Don't, don't bother with vain repetition. Don't use a whole bunch of words over and over again as if that's somehow going to get God's attention. Uh, Don't try and whip yourself up into a frenzy or some frantic emotional state in your prayers. Don't try and copy someone else who's very emotive in their prayers as if, oh, that's the prayer that works or makes me feel I'm close to God. Don't try to impress your future father-in-law as I once did with my lengthy prayers. He is a pastor. (laughs) Don't do it for someone else that's listening, right? Just direct your requests to your Father in heaven. He's listening. He's interested, not just in your request, but in you. And he hears our prayers, and we direct our attention to him. Last week, we talked a little bit about that phrase, Father in heaven. We recognize that it's a phrase of intimacy, right? There's a closeness of relationship. It's not the general sense of Father as as we are all God's offspring. No, this is the specific sense of those who have accepted Jesus Christ and are now called children of God. That's the sense in which you're talking, this Abba Father. And Abba, not, not the childish way of saying Daddy. I don't, I don't really like that. I know sometimes preachers will say this, it's like saying Daddy. But I think it's, it's much more mature, much more intimate, and much more close than that, with a lot of knowledge behind it. There's a confidence that comes from this loving relationship with God as we view Him as Father. But Father would have also evoked a different meaning for the Jewish disciples, and we miss this often. And so I just want to dig into that briefly, because the first time that Israel is relating to God as Father is when Moses goes before Pharaoh. You you know the story, or maybe you've heard of the story, of course. Uh, Classic Bible story, Moses before Pharaoh with his staff. And I always picture him now saying, you shall not pass, but that's a whole different, that's a whole different story. No, Moses stands before Pharaoh and he says this, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, so let my people go that they may serve me. What an amazing thing. God claims them. God claims Israel. This is my son, my firstborn, so let them go. For Israel, and this is what N.T. Wright says, for Israel to call God Father then was to hold on to the hope of liberty. The slaves were to be called sons. The very first word of the Lord's Prayer, therefore, contains within it not just intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity, but hope. I think sometimes we, we miss out on the radical nature of the Lord's Prayer and what it would have stirred up in the hearts of the early disciples. That sense of freedom, that sense of revolution, that sense of God as Father bringing on the new exodus in Jesus as he was about to set people free. So when we pray our Father, 
we're not just expressing the joy of an intimate relationship. We're also calling out for freedom and justice and for the end to oppression. This is a prayer of intimacy, but it's also a prayer of the revolution of Jesus Christ. And I hope we catch that as we go through it. So Jesus in the prayer teaches us to offer six petitions, six requests that are found in the prayer. And these requests we discovered last week, they actually show us something of God. They're not just, hey, say this, ask for this, and you'll get it. They actually reveal the heart of the Father. So when we pray this prayer, we align our priorities with the priorities of God. So what are God's priorities? I don't think we often ask that in prayer. We come to prayer saying, what's on my list? What are my priorities? But in the Lord's Prayer, we're asked to pause and say, what are God's priorities? Well, the first three are these, and they're all wrapped around the word your. Your name, your kingdom, your will. First off, hallowed be your name. That's priority number one. Don't know if you ever thought of it that way. God's number one priority is his name. We don't use that word hallowed too often. When do we use it? Once a year. October 31st, Halloween, <laughs> which is short for All Hallows' Eve, right? And so it's maybe hard for us to access what this phrase means. But the, the word hallowed means to make holy or to sanctify, to set apart as holy. And when we talk about God's name, we're not just talking about the letters that form the word. I know within Jewish tradition in particular, they'll leave out the vowels to show that they are uh, keeping God's name holy, but that's not really what it's about. It's not about the actual letters that form the name. When we talk about the name of God, we're talking about God's character. We're talking about God's glory. We're talking about God's reputation. To have a good name, if you're a builder or a musician or a dad, <laughs> to have a good name is what? Is to have a good reputation. Is to have a good name for God is his character, his glory, his reputation. So what we're praying is this. God, reveal yourself and set apart your name, which is above every name. And we see this all through the Bible. I hope you start noticing this as you read through the Bible now. And we, can, we can pick almost any page, almost any page, and we'll read something about God's glory or God's name, God's character, all throughout the earth. We read it in the commandments. What does the commandments tell us? Do not take the name of your lo the Lord your God in vain. And some people translate that as don't swear using the name of Jesus. That's part of it. Don't disrespect the name. But it's so much more than that. Don't take God's character lightly. As we go out in our words and our actions, don't discredit the reputation of God. Don't take the name of the Lord our God in vain. That's part of it. We go to uh, Moses in Exodus 32, and God is so angry with Israel that he's about to wipe them off the face of the earth. And what does Moses do? He goes up and he says, hold on a minute. For the sake of your name, don't do this. For the sake of your reputation, don't do this. Think about it, God. Think about how you brought them out of Egypt, how you've delivered them, and now you're going to slaughter them in the desert? And it says at the end of that passage, so God relented. <laughs> He repented, which is a fascinating idea, because of his name, because of his reputation. We think of David in Psalm 23 and all throughout the Psalms, but Psalm 23 is one we probably know the best. Guide me in the path of righteousness. Why? For your name's sake. Guide me in the path of righteousness. Help me to walk 
in a right way in this world. Why? Not just so I get benefit from that, but so that God's reputation is intact, so that God's name is holy. Guide me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, when we come to Jesus, we find it's all about the Father's name. I think we overlook this sometimes. The primary mission of Jesus was to set apart the name of his Father. Now, sometimes we say, wait a minute. I thought the primary mission of Jesus was to save me. If I was the only person uh, on earth ever lived, God would send Jesus to die on the cross for me. I know there's a sentiment there, and we sometimes say it. I think it's a little too sentimental and undermines the cosmic influence of the cross because it's so much bigger than just me. Jesus came to glorify his Father, to glorify the name of his Father. We know that because in John 12, it says it. (laughs) Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, instead, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, what is this? Is God a narcissist? Is that what it makes him? We see, I've been caught up in some of these uh, reels on Facebook, and don't start watching some of those things, because it will suck you into a vortex, and you'll lose hours of your life. Just ignore them if you're on Facebook. But sometimes I'm just fascinated, actually, by the narcissism that's in our society, and that we're so prone to. And so when God is all so concerned about his name, is, is he being narcissistic when he, when he wants people to glorify him all the time and, and all of this kind of stuff? Well, he would be, except he's God, right? Except the fact that he is the creator of the universe. And if his reputation uh, falls into disrepute, then we're all in trouble. If somehow, if you had a, a craftsman that came and you found out this craftsman had a terrible reputation, a terrible name. You'd be worried about the product that he built in your house. God's name needs to be preserved. And sometimes we forget that because his reputation equates to our salvation. So yes, it's appropriate to focus on his name. This is why Jesus was given a name which is above every name. Why? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is why salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven, given to mankind by which we must be saved. So God's great priority, the passion of his heart, is his name, his character, the revelation of who he is, and his reputation around the world. The integrity of the name of God is what guarantees our salvation. And that's so important to get. So we pray, Father in heaven, make real your character, magnify your name on earth as it is in heaven. Father, enhance your reputation in all the earth. Okay, priority number two, your kingdom come. God in Christ reveals by his spirit the priority of his kingdom. This is important for us to get. I think sometimes we think of the priority maybe of the church. We talk a lot about the church and especially the local church. But God has in mind something bigger, of which the church is an agent. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is both now and not yet. The kingdom of God, which is going to be a surprise to us all when we discover who's part of the kingdom and what God is doing in this kingdom. And it's this big um, revelation that Jesus brings. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know, we have so many other priorities in our prayers that, that I mentioned. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, seek 
first the kingdom of God and what? All these things will be added to you as well. But seek first the kingdom. Give priority to the kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God isn't just some fairy tale land. It's not just some spiritual ideal. It's not just a message of eternal salvation that's for some time in the future. It's the reality of God's justice and his righteousness breaking through into our world right now. That's part of what the kingdom of God is. Again, N.T. Wright says this. Jesus' first followers didn't think for a moment that the kingdom meant simply some new religious advice, an improved spirituality, a better code of morals, or a freshly crafted theology. They held to a stronger and more dangerous claim. They believed that in the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the whole cosmos had turned the corner of darkness into light. The kingdom was indeed here, though it differed radically from what they had imagined. They were longing for the kingdom, but when Jesus explained it, it looked very different from what they imagined. I like to play board games, and uh, sometimes I win, which is even better. Not always, but I especially like games. Now, this is going to reveal something of me that maybe I should keep hidden, but I especially like games where I get to build little kingdoms. You know the games I'm talking about? You know, when I was a kid, and I, I have lots of brothers, and I always lost at this game, except for once, we'd play Risk. You know the board game Risk? We'd play that for hours, always at Christmas time. And me being the youngest by far, I'd often lose. I would hide out in Australia and just wait for the right moment to conquer the world. And once it happened. But I love that. And, and in later years, we've been playing Settlers of Catan. Some of you know that game. And I get excited even thinking about it. And now my daughters beat me all the time, which is okay, actually. But while I'm building my little kingdom, my little empire, I secretly begin to imagine if I had this kingdom, what would be my great symbol? You know, that would be on my shields, my banners. I don't say this out loud, except for now. But while I'm sitting there, I think, well, be a giant hammer. I've got this awesome hammer in my garage. I think that would be a great symbol for a kingdom, conquering kingdom, right? Or maybe an eagle. But I think that one's been taken by, you know, other places. So I can't do that. But when Jesus comes and starts talking about the kingdom, the primary symbol he uses is what? A seed. That's not very intimidating, is it? It's a strange symbol for the kingdom. But it tells us the kingdom of God is not as we expected, but it's still incredibly powerful. Because a seed can break up the concrete in the parking lot and sidewalks and everything else. A seed, when it dies and falls into the ground, it can bring new life. It can feed people. Just think of the power of a seed. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom is powerful, but not in the way that we're used to. And the problem with the church, and the problem with church leaders sometimes, is we try to wield power like the world around us, like the kingdoms of this world. But the kingdom of God is like someone called left-handed power. It's a different kind of power that we're maybe not used to. It's the power of being a servant, the power of dying in order to see life come. And that's the kingdom of God. And so that's what we're praying for. We're praying your kingdom come. Set this world right, Father. Is that our prayer? God, set this world right, but in your way, in the way of love and justice and mercy and peace. Take your rightful place in my life, Father, but do so in your way, 
love and justice and mercy and peace. Okay, the third request. Your will be done. This is a third priority. God has the priority for his name in the earth. God has a priority for his kingdom in our lives. But God also has the priority of his will being done. And Jesus makes this clear. In John chapter 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. That's a fascinating statement to try and explore and unpack all of that. But Jesus models it for us. He came to do his Father's will. And we see it in the garden right before the cross, right? When Jesus faces the agony of the cross and anticipates it, he says, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And Jesus isn't saying this with gritted teeth. He's not saying, okay, fine, have it your way, God. And he's not saying this with sort of a deep resignation, just saying, well, I guess I don't have a choice, so fine, have it your way, God. He's not saying this out of resentment. I don't like it, but whatever. That's not the way that Jesus is doing the will of his Father. I mentioned it last week. We have a puppy. We're trying to train our puppy. One of the things we're trying to train our puppy to do is to sit before going in and out of doorways. I don't know if you've ever done this, if you have a dog, but it will make your life much better if your dog sits and doesn't try and charge through the door. And so our puppy does it pretty good sitting to go out. But coming back in, especially after the cold weather, she just wants in, get her treat, and go to her happy place or warm spot on the couch, right? I do too, actually. So we're all standing there in the cold weather waiting for this crazy dog to just sit down. And you don't want to, you know, get too aggressive with it, and you don't want to try and force it. You want to do of it of its own volition. You want it to obey your will of its own volition. And sometimes that doesn't happen for a long time. And you try and coax it, and you say, sit, and you can tell. She's looking at you going, come on, man, just open the door. We all know the routine. And so eventually, finally, she slowly sits down. She's got such a strong will. And as soon as her butt touches the ground, I open the door, because I'm cold too. But there's a sense in which our dog is resenting our will, or even gritting her teeth just to get it done because she knows there's a reward on the other side. That's not the way we're meant to follow the will of God. That's not the way Jesus followed it. Why? How could Jesus follow the will of his Father, even though it meant going to the cross? Well, a secret, I think, is in the word thelema. And thelema is the Greek word in here for God's divine will. Because thelema also has the sense of goodness and pleasure. God's desire is for our good. He is for us and not against us. And when we understand that God's will is good and perfect and true, then we want to rush to do it, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though it might mean sitting on a cold slab of concrete, not quite. But even though it's maybe difficult for us, when we understand the goodness of God's will for us, then we rush to do it. The Father's will is that we should know Him. The Father's will is that we should give thanks in all circumstances. The Father's will is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. The Father's will is good. The Father's will is beautiful and true. And so we pray that God's will will be done for at least two reasons. First of all, for me, because I don't know what to do anymore. If you look at the world around you, you look at the situation in your life, and you just think, I don't know. I, I give up. 
Father, your will be done in this situation because you know what's best. But we also embrace God's will because it is good and it's good for us, even though it might be difficult. So when we pray your will be done, we're asking for God to work according to his pleasure and for our good. Well, here's the point in the end, or at least one of the points I want to drive home. Jesus not only teaches us to pray the priorities of his Father in heaven and our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, but he also modeled those priorities in his life. That's the very thing that he was doing, the very thing he wants us to do. And so the prayer, the Lord's prayer, just comes out of how Jesus was behaving in the world, the priorities that he gave in his life to God's name, to God's uh, kingdom, and to God's will. Those are the priorities for us too, and we find it. And so we need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Well, just in closing, I'm going to read us maybe a bit of a strange quote. Annie Dillard, some of you might recognize the name and the author. She's a kind of interesting, fascinating lady. And uh, she wrote this um, about people in the church and maybe not understanding that when we pray, we're in invoking the God of the universe. We're invoking something massive and bigger than we realize. And our lives should be different because of it. This is what she says. Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? That's a great way to start out, isn't it? Why do people in the church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're not just offering a list of requests and petitions. We're coming before the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. We're invoking his name. We're asking that his kingdom come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the time when we have taken your name lightly. Or even times in the history of your people when we have brought discredit or disreputation to your name because of our words and our actions. It's so easy for us to get our own egos in the way, our own priorities. Help us, Father, to line up with what you're doing in this world, with the goodness and the beauty and the grace and the truth and the love that you want to bring. Father, orient our lives to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.